Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy. We are working our way through this book of the Bible. And if you're new to church, I want to encourage you to uh, dive in with us. Uh, one of the things we like to do as a church is we like to actually study through books of the Bible. We've got a good chunk this fall, and so we're going to be diving through 1 Timothy. And uh, I encourage you just if you miss a week, because I know that happens, to maybe go back and catch the sermons, but continue to study. Also, I encourage you to jump in a small group. In our small groups, we're going to be taking uh, really the, the things we talk about in here and not, uh, that we hear about and say, how do we live that out? How do we become not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word? And small groups are a great place for you to get together with some other folks and just say, how do we apply this and live this out and figure out what this looks like kind of in this day and age and in your own life scenario. And so we encourage you to, uh, to follow along as much as possible. We're going to dive into 1 Timothy. But let me pray for us and we'll get in here. Father, we thank you that you have given us the good news of the gospel of your grace, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not demanded that we work our way back to you through good works, through religious activity, through our own self-righteousness, but that you sent a son to die for us, to make a way for us to be connected to you and forever with you. Father, we pray that you would guard the trust of the gospel all our days as a church. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know of your grace and does not truly understand the gospel, would you open the eyes of their heart today that they might lean on you and rest in, in your son even now. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we kind of kicked off this series, and we cut. And some of you may or may not know; others of you may not know. But I was a historical theology guy, so I tend to come at things looking at the big picture. I tend to like to look at kind of the the big grand scope of things. And so we started off there and talked about really some of what Tim, uh, Paul is charging Timothy with in this book. But we also stepped back and just talked about why that's difficult for us in our day and age to embrace some of that. And part of that has to do with just the, the way in which our world works. And I mean, we live in a crazy time. The highest value within our society really is in, in Western culture has been lifted up as personal freedom and self-expression that whatever it is that you desire in here, you ought to be able to accomplish out there and you ought to be not just allowed to do so, but you ought to actually be affirmed in doing so. And so we create this kind of system within our, our cult Western culture that just says, hey, whatever it is you want, uh, you are the center of the universe and you as an independent soul ought to be able to be affirmed and encouraged in anything you desire to do, which creates some interesting scenarios, by the way. Uh, I heard a, recently about a high school here in our city where there's a group of kids that have decided that they identify as being cats. 
And so there within this high school uh, here in Edmond, Oklahoma, kind of heartland, middle America, there are a group of kids that decided they wanted to be cats and they called themselves by cat names. And apparently teachers are being instructed that they need to respectfully refer to these students by their kitten names and not their given names. And uh, this is the kind of world we live in, which is kind of a strange, you can laugh at that. Like, I know you're uncomfortable because, you know, what's interesting about this to me is this is how uncomfortable we are in our world because it's such a politically correct world that we're scared to death to even laugh at that because we're not sure exactly what to do with it. And we're scared to step across a line. And I respectfully would just say that you're probably not a kitten if you've been born of a man and a woman. That's just not the way the world works. But I, when I look at our, at our world, I think in 150 years, historians are going to have a field day with us. Like, how do you look back on this in history and write a history about this and say, hey, let me explain to you the values of the society and the implications of what born out of, of those ideas and, and those ideologies. And so, and it's an interesting time for us to be alive with this idea of self-expression and personal freedom. And we said last week, that causes us to balk a little bit at institutions like the church or at the authority of the word of God or anything that looks like it it has been passed down from other generations, we tend to push back against or have some natural kind of reflux or allergy against those sorts of things. And so that creates some tension for many of us in our world. But it's interesting for us as Christians that uh, we, we sometimes find ourselves at odds and that creates some tension for us. I watch as many of us uh, really struggle with this. And for some of us, it creates angst and fear and worry and anxiety. And you see the way the world and you just think, man, it feels like everything's running off a cliff and there's no way to turn it around. And so we just begin to get anxious and worried. For the others of you though, you just get angry. Like you just look at the world and you're just like, this is stupid. And you just start calling it out and you get frustrated about the things that you see and you aren't sure exactly what to do. In fact, one of the things that's difficult about us as Christians is that that in our day, some of the, the ideas that are taught here in the scriptures get us labeled as bigots or as backwards or as archaic or as in, uh, ignorant. And so we feel this tension sometimes without, with the ideas of our world in terms of where we really fit in and how it is that that's supposed to work itself out. The truth is the Bible's always been out of step. And we said last week in this place of Ephesus, this city where there's a goddess, um, there, there's the seven wonders of the world, there's a beautiful temple, there's goddess worship of the goddess Artemis, that the, the people that, uh, that Timothy was pastoring, they found themselves very much at odds with the city that they lived in. And that really shouldn't surprise us. In fact, Jesus, if you go back, if you go back and look at the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life, it's pretty obvious Jesus often found himself at odds with the people in his day too. And yet, when we find ourselves at odds in our day, we sometimes act surprised. Like, but why didn't everyone agree with me? And yet, I think we probably should anticipate that not to be the case. So uh, here's what, I, what I've noticed as I studied over the last couple of weeks. I've just been thinking about this idea that one of the big ideas in Timothy's life that you see, and he shows up in Acts, he shows up in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, elsewhere in the scriptures, you see this, this kind of theme of Timothy's life that he's constantly feeling timid. He's feeling a little bit afraid. He's having to be encouraged to stand up and to be strong. He's had to be encouraged to, fi- to find courage to face the day and all the things that he's facing. And it occurred to me as I studied that we feel a little bit like Timothy. 
And so Paul's encouragement to this young pastor who found himself at odds with much of the peop- many of the people in his city, uh, I think will be an encouragement to us as we find ourselves at odds sometimes in our world as well. Here's what I want, us to, want you to recognize today. And God has entrusted us with a mission. God has enlisted us into an important task, and he's given us a plan of attack. And so the question I think that we have to ask ourselves is, will we take it up? Will we take up that which the Lord has entrusted to us? Let's read 1 Timothy, starting in chapter 1. We're just going to read through the first seven verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So as we dive in here, the first thing we see is that Paul's letter is, is really something that he's given as authoritative. You see this idea of authority, and let me unpack why I say that and why I think that's at the forefront of what Paul is starting here. It says Paul, and he starts off, he gives himself a title. What is it? I'm an apostle. An apostle was one of those that that was ordained by God and called by God and selected by God to help institute and launch the church. And so as someone who spoke with God's power as a representative of God in order to build up this new enterprise called the church that, uh, that, that followed after Jesus. And so Paul had been saved by Christ and had been selected as an apostle and set apart and had become kind of this pioneer of the faith, but he bore the authority of, uh, of apostleship that really gave him credibility within all of the circles in which he ran. And so he starts off and he reminds Timothy, and he doesn't need to remind Timothy, Timothy's a good, Timothy's a good friend, but because he knows this letter's going from Timothy to the church and to everyone else, he's kind of letting everyone know, I'm writing with authority as one who's been set apart as an apostle. And the first thing he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. By command. So I'm a, he's an apostle who has authority, but he also says by command of Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting is in most of Paul's letters, when he writes this, he, he talks about his call and he says by the will of God. It's typically he talks about by the will of God. Here, why does he say command here? It's actually a military term. And so when Paul says, I'm an apostle and I'm sent to you by command, he's saying, look, I've got a military charge, that I've been sent. I'm I'm a man operating under orders from another. The idea is that that, that a command was given and passed down to another, and that was instilled for him. And so he's being sent out almost on a military mission under orders from God. And he says another interesting thing. He says, God, our Savior, which it would be easy to miss over, but almost always Paul, when he talks about this, says Christ our Savior. But here he says God our Savior. Why is that? Well, he's actually 
probably trying to help them understand that this comes from God the Father who was the one who sent the Savior and orchestrated the entire process of our salvation. So he's saying, look, this isn't, didn't just originate with Jesus, but there was a sovereign God-ordained plan all the way to eternity past, and God the Father sent his Son in order to be a Savior. So God is the source of that salvation that came through the Son. And Paul, again, is claiming an authority. He wants us to understand that he's an apostle of Jesus, commanded by God his Savior in the the grand scheme of of an eternal plan of God's sovereign predestined work to be lived out. And do you see how he's just piling up his credentials? It's like if you're going to go into an interview, you want to put everything on your resume. Like if you're going to go in and you really want a job, you don't go in and kind of throw in just a couple of tidbits on your resume. You stack it up and go, man, I'm going to give you everything I got because I really want this job. And so I'm bringing all the ammo I've got and I'm going to fill up every bullet point and every page I can to throw everything at you so that you listen to my presentation Paul's making that kind of a thing. He's saying, and there's so much, there's an eternal plan being worked out through the authority that I've been given and commanded to instill to this one named Timothy. Now notice what Paul does here. It's interesting that in most of Paul's letters at this point, uh, he has a pattern that he follows in his letters. And almost always at this point, he stops and either offers a prayer of thanksgiving or he writes a thanksgiving to the people whom he's, he's addressing the letter. He skips that here. And you almost, you're intended to get the sense that this is like a military communique, like, man, I don't have time for any fluff. And so here's my authority, here's my credentials, let's get after it and get into the business we have to be about. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, stay at Ephesus. You're to remain there. So notice the pattern, Paul is a set-apart apostle commanded by God through an eternal decree to be a part of his plan of salvation. Then he turns to Timothy and says, now you, I urged you, meaning I gave you a command. So the command which I received, I passed down to you as the one who's been positioned in that town, in that place to carry the authority and represent God amongst those people. I urge you to stay there, Timothy. Meaning Timothy now has authority and he has orders from God to continue the mission of God in that city. Friends, the first task we have in the mission of God is to stay in the church where God has placed us. Timothy, Paul says, stay there in Ephesus. Care for that church. Fulfill the mission that you've been given there. So let's look at the marching orders. I've got a slide here. I just want to make sure you see kind of the, the way in which this has been passed down. And some of you guys come from a military background and you understand how to take orders and you know what that looks like. But just look at the progression that's here. God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle, to Timothy the Pastor, down to the church members. And then you get down to a few verses later and you're going to get sinners that are supposed to be saved. And so sinners that are then invited into the church. And there's this progression that's meant to take place of what started in the mind of God has been passed down to all of, all of humanity, but it has an order to it and a structure to it. It also has an authority and a power that's included in it. Think about this. God the Father sends a Savior, Christ. Christ selects and draws Paul to himself as an apostle. Paul charges Timothy to stay there. Timothy is to teach and instruct the people of Ephesus so that the gospel would continue to be spread and sinners would be saved. 
What is so important that Timothy was left in charge? Notice if you go back to verse, <clears throat> uh, verse 3. It says, I urge you to remain or stay at Ephesus <coughs> so that, when he says so that, it's really saying for the purpose of. This is the reason why you're to be there. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What's happening in their world is there was a desire for people to preach a novelty. They even in that day desired to have kind of a progressive thinking, a new idea, something that was speculative, something that was going to kind of ruffle the feathers and create something, some kind of new energy about things. And so they're driving forward into this new idea. And it says, in fact, that they were speculations and myths. It says they were endless, meaning there was never-ending genealogies. Probably for them, what that had to do with was they were probably going back to some of their Jewish heritage and trying to draw on some of the nationalistic fervor of the genealogies and things that were there and construct kind of a different view of legalism. And we'll get into some of that later. But you see this idea in all of the language that Paul uses here that this was kind of this, they wanted to be cutting edge. They wanted to be novel. They wanted to have really creative ideas that sort of bent uh, the, kind of the status quo and moved into a different thing. Now, here's what's interesting. What Paul is talking about here is within the church community, he says, command them not to teach any different doctrine. We said last week that there are times when we have to be dogmatic, that there's dogma that actually leads to life. There's dogma that actually breathes goodness and health into our lives. And there's times when we have to draw lines. And Paul tells Timothy, command them not to teach anything different than what has been handed down from Christ through the apostles to us. And it's interesting when you think about just the rhythm and the way this, this thing works. See, out there, you can speculate about all kinds of stuff. Out, out there, in, 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 as you go sit in a restaurant or you sit in a pub or, or you go sit in a coffee shop, you, you can speculate, you can, you can dream up all kinds of ideas, you can think through, through all sorts of ideas. But Paul says, in here, in the church community, he says, don't allow anything to be taught that's contrary to the gospel. The problem was here, there's certain men. This wasn't theoretical, right? Paul says certain men, meaning like, you know who they are. There's guys out there and what's happening is they're arguing, they're stirring the pot, they're creating dissension. They're trying to ruffle uh, the feathers of the people in the church and they're causing there to be a division that takes place. But it wasn't theoretical. These men arose within the church in the name of Christ and yet started steering things away. See, the, the biggest problem that the church has is not what's out there. The biggest problem that the church has is what's in here. And you see that over and over, both in the scriptures, but also in church history. But this wasn't really unexpected. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul speculates that this is going to happen. In Acts 20, uh, verse 30, he says, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's in an interesting passage there where Paul's talking about you know, this, the desire he has for this church to be established. And for Paul, this was really personal. Paul had invested three years in establishing this church in this town called Ephesus, and he had helped build it up. And he says, people are gonna come and they're gonna twist things and they're gonna begin to try to steer people away. And so for Paul, this is a very personal thing and created a lot of anguish. Second Timothy 2.14, he's gonna say, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. You see, what Paul understands is that it's actually destructive to steer people away from the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the, the life-saving and life-changing good news 
that has been handed down to us through Christ in the scriptures and through his church. And to twist that message in a way that it no longer can be life-saving and no longer be life-changing creates devastation to those who have been led astray. So what, what Paul's so worked up about? These false teachers had struck a blow against saving faith. So we're going to get more into the, the gospel of grace and what that looks like next week. But I, I want you to, two things I want to point out here today. That first, these were people from inside the church. These were people they knew. People who professed to be Christians who were now actually leading them astray. So it's possible to be around the word of God, to be around the people of God, and yet to begin to be led astray. Second, this is probably some form of legalism. In verse seven, it says that, that they were trying to be teachers of the law. It's probably insinuating that there's some form of legalistic kind of an enterprise or spiritual enterprise. So they were doing this in the name, not of irreligion, but of the name of religion, in the name of some sort of religious activity. And so they were uh, really, it, it's interesting, Paul says, but they're teaching things they don't even understand, and they, yet they're confident in their assertions about it. Meaning these guys are really bold in the statements they make, but they're ignorant and don't really understand what it is they're even talking about. See, legalism is a system, when, when I say legalism, you may not know that term, it really is a system of works righteousness. When I say legalism, it's something that you, by obeying the law, can work your way into God's good graces. You, by being self-righteous, can establish God's favor or earn God's favor. That through religious activity or nationalistic pride or your own good deeds or your own social work or, or your own morality, that somehow you're going to build yourself up enough that God just has to, uh, to, be, to bless you and be a part of your life. That's what what's probably going on here, some form of that. We'll look some more at some of that next week. But Paul, it's interesting when you think about this, Paul said that the aim of our charge in verse five, the aim of our charge is love. And yet here, guys, that they're not trying to create an environment of love and grace. They're trying to build up self and promote their ego. And so you see Paul say, Timothy, you need to silence them, shut them down. This brings us to an interesting phrase in this passage. It says that uh, they're not to teach any different doctrine. They're not to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than, meaning in contrast to, so we're not to do any of those things. What is it we're supposed to do? We're supposed to um, embrace the stewardship from God that is by faith. This phrase, the stewardship of God, is, is really talking about, when you think of stewardship, it's an administration or a management of something. That any of, if you've got a financial manager, you entrust them a certain amount of money and you ask them to manage it, to oversee it, not to take it and hoard it for themselves, but to manage it for your, for your good and for your benefit. You're to steward or manage or administrate that which is from God. And this is, part of what this means is that that we're not just to make up what, what it is that we do. The, the church doesn't just invent new ideas. In fact, the church receives something from the Lord, which we are to steward, to manage, to administer the stewardship from God. I mentioned earlier uh, that God has entrusted us with a mission and given us an important, attack, uh, an important task, and he's given us a plan of attack. This is really what, what this is speaking of. When he talks about the stewardship that's from God, he's talking about us caring well and being entrusted with the message of God's grace and his goodness. 
And so we're to administer and carry, care well for, those, uh, for that which we've been given. The word he uses for this is entrust. In fact, if you look down in verse 11, um, we'll get to the, want to just point out what it is that this trust is about. It says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul is talking about stewarding something. What is it that he's to be a steward of that he's telling Timothy that we're to be stewards of that ultimately the church is supposed to be stewards of? It's the gospel of God's glory and of his grace. And you can understand why that's so important if you skim through the rest of the scriptures. Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel that brings us, uh, that allows us to be saved. And that's why it's an important focus for Paul in his letters. And trust is actually used three times in 2 Timothy as well. So Paul writes another letter we call 2 Timothy to to this pastor a little bit later. And I want to just go in because this idea really is passed down, not just in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, but it's really something that's instructive for the whole church. 2 Timothy 1, 12 to 14 says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So let's start there. What's been in, uh, first, what what does Paul say? He says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. I am convinced he's able to guard that until that day. Paul says, look, I've entrusted my life to the Lord. I've entrusted my future to the Lord. I've entrusted my eternity to the Lord. And because I've entrusted him, because he's able, I don't have to fear. So because he holds my life up and I've entrusted my life to him, there's some freedom for me. And I know that he can guard that that which I've entrusted to him. So Paul then says, and so until that day when I go to be with him, I can, he can entrust me with his message and with his work. So it goes on and says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So you see the progression? Paul says, God saved me. So I've entrusted my life to him, meaning I've kind of put my put the weight of my life all on to the Lord and I'm entrusting him that he's gonna save me, he's gonna deliver me, he's gonna take me to be with him for all of eternity. And so because I can entrust my life to him, he has also entrusted me with his message. And that which the Holy Spirit has worked in me, I'm to guard it all of my days until I go to be with him. God says, you can entrust your soul to me and I will entrust the message of salvation and the gospel and the truth of the Bible to you. 2 Timothy 2.2, but you then, my child, so the next chapter, just a little bit later, you then, my child, Paul again writing to Timothy, this pastor, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, guard the pattern of sound words that you heard from me. Then Paul comes here and he says, be strengthened by the grace of Christ. And what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul gives it to Timothy. Timothy's to give it to whom? Faithful men who are to do what? Teach others also. Do you see progression there? If you think about the progression of kind of what, uh, what 2 Timothy's teaching here, it goes Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. 
What you need to understand is for us in the church, all of us fit into that, that slide somewhere. I don't know where you are. I think, you know, you, you take the apostolic truth of Paul and there's a pastor, Timothy, and then he says, take it to faithful men, the leaders of the church, and they're to teach that to others also. Who, by the way, there's, there's meant to be a reproducible thing here. So teaching, if, if, if Paul teaches Timothy, he teaches faithful men, teaches others also, the others also become faithful men who then teach others also, who then become faithful men who then teach others also. And do you see how that works? There's a progression. The, the term we oftentimes use for that in the church is discipleship, that we are to make disciples. It's interesting that Jesus connected these ideas actually of authority and discipleship in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore what? Go and make disciples. Jesus says, I will be with you always. And all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. So friends, how many of you feel like you have authority from heaven upon your life? See, one of the things that I realize about the church in America is, and so often we've abdicated that authority. We, we, we don't recognize the authority we've been given. We don't understand the, the strength that we stand because we, we look at ourselves. And so often we punt this out and we try to incorporate ideas of the world and other things into the way in which we operate. And so we take some business strategies and some worldly ideas and some other stuff and some creativity and some neat stuff that we pulled from this source over here. And we weave all this together and we try to do this thing called the church. And I think sometimes we need to just stop and go, you know what, there's an authority that's been given God the Father sent his son to save us, sent the truth of the gospel through the apostles and placed it in the church through the pastors and through the discipleship. There is taught to faithful men who teach others also. This has been handed down to us. And so we have, we have a mission. We have a priority and a task. We've got a, a responsibility of that which has been entrusted to us to live it out for the sake of the kingdom. And it's interesting in this passage too, you know, I mean, God's eternal, right? So God doesn't have to pass a baton to anyone else. But you and I, I mean, we, we get God well in about eight decades on this spinning planet. And then we go in the ground. And so we have to take that which we've been given and we have to pass it down. We have to transfer it to someone else if it's gonna continue on this spinning, this spinning globe of ours. And so you think about a relay race, you think about a baton. In fact, when I first took a pastoral job, they actually brought me a baton and handed it to me and said, hey, this is now yours to carry. And there's an image that, you know, in a relay race, it doesn't matter how fast you are between the different legs of the race if you drop the baton and don't get it to the finish line. We have been entrusted with something that we are to guard the trust, Paul says. He calls it a treasure that we're to protect. And we take it and we pass it down from one person to another throughout human history. And that's how Christ builds his church in the midst of a world that's filled with all kinds of crazy ideas is we stay true to that which we've been taught and we continue to teach it to others. My daughter Kate this week was telling me um, she was playing with some dominoes and it was kind of a, a funny... Uh, interaction, but as she's playing with dominoes, um, she's, you know, stacking them up and doing the thing where you knock them all down and makes all kinds of noise in the house and those things. And I was asking, I was like, hey, I was like, when did you, where'd you learn how to do that? She said, I learned that at church. 
And I was like, oh, we're doing good stuff. Domino's a church. I like it. Um, and I said, tell me about that. And she actually talked about the Coles. And she was talking about a lesson she had in her elementary class here. And she said that they were explaining to her that the way the gospel is supposed to spread through the world is that one person takes it and it hand, leans into another and leans into another and leans into another. And through that, you get this progression that takes place as the dominoes continue to move. Um, you know, this is simple enough that a nine-year-old can get it. But sometimes we lose our way and we get distracted. We get discouraged. We forget what it is we're to be about. And we drift off into creating novel ideas and all kinds of other things. And I think Paul's just going, hey, take the stuff you heard from me. Teach it to faithful men. Have them teach some other dudes. And let's just keep this thing going. And we're going to be okay because God will protect the truth of his word. Verse 6. The problem is that false teachers oftentimes love, and, and many times people in the church love to stir things up. They love to critique. They love to debate. They love to parse up plans and divide up stuff and get uh, all kinds of speculation going on. And so there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of walk. They uh, the church oftentimes uh, succeeds much more in discussion than it does in discipleship. And we're actually called to make disciples. And verse six says, um, or I'm sorry, verse five, what Paul says is the aim of our charge is love that overflows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. So instead of being a place that's, that's filled with love that overflows out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere, meaning a non-hypocritical faith, People swerve away, they veer off, they get off course. The idea there is uh, like an archery that you're aiming at a target, but you're continually missing the goal and the aim of what it is you're trying to hit. This is how you get shipwrecked in the church. A problem is not really uh, typically with what's out there. When you talk about fighting the good fight and the warfare that Paul's encouraging us in, it's not so much be fighting the stuff out there as it's fighting to do the right stuff in here and take care of the things of which we've been given. Problems with us. You notice it talks about promoting speculations rather than the stewardship of God. And so often the church is in chaos because we've kind of, it's like we're, we're planted and uh, got our feet planted in midair with no, no stability, nothing to build it on. But God has given us a word. He's given us truth. We have to build a foundation that's solid in doctrine. And the gospel, spiritual life is always more than thinking, but it's never less. Meaning we have to be theologians. We have to understand what it is that we are to, uh, to understand. And here at the church, we don't, we, don't want, we don't expect everyone to come in here and be able to write a systematic theology. We don't expect you to come in and understand all the ins and outs and all the terminology and all the different things. But here's what I hope for you. I hope that you're growing more robust in your understanding of God's word that you're growing and deepening the roots that you've established and the truth that the church has passed down from generation to generation. That somehow you're flexing your muscles and beginning to grow up in some of those things. And so we don't expect everyone to know everything from day one, but we do want to be a place where, I mean, we're leaning in. We're, we're, we're beginning to put our, my, our, our, our arms around these truths and guard them. And so that you're taking ownership of your own spiritual development and your own growth. You know, it's interesting with Paul, with all this, it's not just trying to be right for right's sake. 
Like he's not trying to say we need, we need to hold doctrine so we can feel better about ourselves and be right and win arguments. What he's saying is doctrinal health actually changes lives. It produces a clean heart. It produces a good conscience, a life that doesn't have to live in shame and fear because of the things that, that you've done, but is, is walking in freedom because you've repented often and you've kept a short account. And when you've blown it, you've said, I'm sorry quickly and repented and got back on the right course. And so you're not looking over your shoulder all the time, but you can have a clear conscience in the way in which you live, which gives you freedom to, to serve. Have you ever had to serve when you're walking around in guilt? When you just know like, man, I'm not walking the walk. I'm not living the life. I'm not doing the thing. And then you show up and there's not, there's not strength and power in that because and you're just feeling weak and you're feeling embarrassed. And what he's saying is the gospel will change your life and can actually give you some strength and, your, and give you a sense of freedom because there's a sincere faith. It's, and that term really means non-hypocritical faith. So let's get back to the word, entrust. Entrust, if you've been entrusted with something, what does it mean? It means that you've got a responsibility. If you've been entrusted with something, it means you've got a role to play. You've got something to do that you are meant to, that you are meant to guard. Friends, we all want to be a part of making disciples. And you fit yourself somewhere in that chart. And you may be new. You may be new to the church. You say, man, I'm just starting to get my, my mind around what this is all about. And what that means is you're you're just starting out in the process. But it's okay, we're all in process. None of us ever arrived this side of heaven. And so, and just begin to grow, jump in. Uh, we want to be a place that's built around the gospel, that depends on the gospel, that runs to God's truth and really uh, upholds God's truth. Not through vain speculations, but those that have a foundation on the truth of God's word and begin to build our lives in it so that we grow up toward maturity in Christ and as a people of God. It's interesting when, you, uh, when I think about our church, where do we need to guard the trust? If that's the call, if we've been entrusted to guard the truth of God's word, where do we need to guard the trust? We need to guard the trust in our gatherings. We need to guard the trust in our preaching, in our prayers, in our, in our singing in this room. Friends, if, if I ever get up and begin to speculate and say, hey, I got this idea, like if I'm ever pulling a comic strip out on Sunday and going, hey, you know what? There's this truth in here that, and, and that's as far as I get and it somehow doesn't connect to the truth of the, of the scriptures. You guys need to leave or get me to leave because there's nothing left for us to offer because it's the, it's the gospel that's the power of God. If we ever begin to speculate and wander off into all kinds of crazy ideas, uh, this church will, will be ending. Um, or you need to, you need to, um, or you need to end it, or you need to find a new pastor. Because this is what we need to preach. This is the truth of God's word. Now, you don't need to hear my creative ideas as much as you need to know the truth of what God has said. And so that we need to, we need to guard the trust here in, in our preaching, in our singing, and all things here. We need to guard the trust in our small groups. We need to guard the trust in our kids' classes. We need to guard the trust in our student ministry. We need to guard the trust in our women's events and our men's events and our equipping classes and in every other avenue of um, serve teams and everything that we do. We are to guard the trust. And that doesn't mean we have to be a fearful, uh, worrisome place. What it means is, man, we just treasure this book. And so I think you can hear that sometimes and you think, man, this just feels like 
we're, we're on edge. No, what it means is we've got, we've got the key to life. This is the life-saving, life-changing gospel of God's word. We want to guard it as a treasure. We want nothing more than to hand that to others so that they can be saved and they can have their life changed by Christ. So we want to fight for that because we believe that's the best thing we have to offer our world and the best thing we have to offer you. The aim and goal of our charge is not rigidity. Paul says the aim of our goal, the aim, the thing we're about is love. And so we want to be a place that's filled with love. In order to do that, we have to guard the truth of God's grace and of his justice. Let me end with this. At a time when uh, when I, when I we started singing a song in the series called A Mighty Fortress. And one of the reasons we started singing that song in this series is it was written by Martin Luther, one of the reformers. And at a time in, in, in the world where the truth of the gospel seemed lost and the, the church seemed to have veered off course and lost its way, Luther helped restore the truth of the gospel to, um, to the people of the church. And he led a reformation of the church. And he certainly was in a battle. He was excommunicated. He was in, at odds with the church. His life was under fire. And um, he wrote a hymn to describe really what that experience was like and really to remind him of the truths that he could count on to carry him through, the, through that dark time. And I think for us, uh, for those of us that have fears and anxieties and worries, for those of us that get angry about the, the course of the world and the way in which things seem to be going, and when you look around, for, for those of us that, and maybe you, you just think, man, I don't know how we turn this thing around. I think what the scriptures tell us is we, we need to be faithful to guard the trust, to entrust our lives to the God who's, who is our Savior, and then to take that which he's given us and guard it and pass it down and be at work about all the tasks we're to be about. So let me just read through parts of, uh, of this hymn. And I, I want to explain it because it's a little bit meaty and it's a little bit difficult when you're singing it to get there. And then as we sing it, I hope these truths will kind of stir your heart and encourage your soul that in our day, just as in Martin Luther's day, our God is still sovereign. Our God is still on his throne. This world is not spinning out of control apart from his care. He very much knows what is going on and he has, he, he's, he's, got, um, he's got a plan for us and he's given it to us and we're to be about that business until he comes back and makes all things right. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he, God's our helper. Amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Now that's a difficult thing to grab, just saying, in a world that seems like it's gone completely awry and everything's sick and broken. So in that kind of world, he's our helper. Still our ancient foe, Satan, doth seek to work us woe. Satan is attacking us. Satan's trying to tear us down. Satan's trying to disrupt and break up the good that God is doing. Satan's craft and power are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. In a dark time where maybe you might be tempted to fear, you have a helper. He's with you and his bulwark's never failing. Verse two, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Friends, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We're to guard it because it connects people to him, not because we're so strong. If we depend on our own strength, then we've already lost. We're not the right man by our side, Jesus, the man of God's own choosing. 
You might ask who it is. Christ Jesus, it's he, the Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. In the midst of a world of turmoil, Christ Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Our world's not going to be lost. He's got it. He must win the battle for us. Verse three. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. There's truth to stand on. We don't have to fear in a world that seems like it's gone awry. He will triumph through us because he has willed his truth to do so. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little world will fell him. And one word from God and Satan's got nothing. And there's a fourth verse that I think we're not gonna sing, but it says, the word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, we've got a God who is forever. His kingdom is forever. His grace is good, and we're gonna talk about that next week. And, and it's mighty to save, and there's no one that it can outsend the grace of God. He's strong enough to hold you no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, and we're going to get there next week. But what we need to understand is that message of God's grace is powerful to save and to change lives, and we have to guard it because it's the greatest gift that we can give to anyone in our church or in our city or around us in the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would make the gospel come to life for us. Father, would you enliven our hunger for your word, for the truth of the gospel. Father, if there's any here who have not trusted in your grace, who have not surrendered to the truth of your word, Father, would you save them even now? That they might lean on you, that they might rest in you, that they might rejoice in you, they might be renewed both today and forevermore. Father, as we as a church, seek to honor you, as Timothy did, as Paul did. Father, would you help us to guard the trust? Father, might there never be a day when we depart from the truth of your word. But might we always elevate it? Might we cling to it? Might we hold fast? Might we guard it well until you return? Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.